If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them out at this point. We are continuing. Thank you. Wow. The generous gift. Love that. This is already open, Sam. Did you drink out of this? All right. Okay. That's all right. Sam and I are good friends, so that's all right. We are continuing our series called Walking the Plank, Following Jesus to a Glorious End. It's kind of a walk through portions of the Gospel of Luke. And so I'd encourage you to take your Bibles out, open them up to the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. We are in chapter 19 this morning, starting at verse 28. I read uh, Matthew's account of this earlier, but now I'm going to read for you Luke's account. It says this, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Beth Pagai and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That's sweet, isn't it? As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your your understanding this morning. Father, we need your wisdom. I pray that we would be a people with open ears, Father, and open hearts to receive your word and that you would change us because of it. Amen. And so try to imagine that you are a Jewish peasant in the middle of the first century. It wasn't always this way. You weren't always a peasant struggling to survive. You weren't always wondering where your next meal was going to come from. You weren't always wondering how you were going to make ends meet. Your dad used to tell you stories of him growing up on his parents' own farm. He felt like a millionaire. He had hundreds of acres to call his own. He had silos that were full of food and barns that were full of animals. It was a good life, at least according to your stomach. But in the middle of the first century BC, Pompey, a general in the Roman army, forcefully took over much of the Jewish land, including your family's estate. So the Romans come in, they take over your land, and they push your family out of it. Your family was left landless under the oppressive takeover of the Romans. And this begins this deep-seated hatred and resentment towards the Romans. And you have this longing to be set free from what you and your family understood to be this tyrannical rule. You hate the Romans. They kicked your family out. They, they, they put you into poverty. Now, the Romans did not take over the land to farm the land themselves like a good government would, right, to, to provide for its people. No, the, the Romans took over the land to, left the land to leave the land barren. They, they wanted the Jewish people to rely solely on them. And so they, they took away their land and they said, you need to come to us for food. You need to come to us for your resources. 
You need to worship the Caesar if you really want to survive in our economic system. Now, not only this, but a few decades later, Herod the Great, and Herod the Great was this Jewish king that the Romans put over the Palestinian region to take charge of the the Jewish people. He increased property tax, which meant that only the extremely wealthy could now survive in the land. Only the aristocrats, only the lawmakers could now survive in the land because they were the ones who had the wealth. They were the ones who had the money. And so because of the amount of land had decreased, but the workers had increased, there was lit- very little work to go around. And because of the amount of land had decreased, there was less food being produced to purchase. And so the majority of the Jewish population at this time in their history was impoverished. They're very poor. They're struggling to survive. They weren't sure how they were going to live day to day. They were underfed. They were peasants. And so you have this resentment and this hatred for the Romans and the Jewish leadership building up in your heart, and you long for the day when justice will prevail. You long for the day when you will be delivered from this terrible situation you find yourself in. And you remember from the days of your childhood how your parents and your grandparents would talk about this Messiah that God was going to bring. This Messiah that God was going to raise up, a Jewish king that would finally sit on David's throne. He was going to sit on David's throne by overthrowing the oppressive Romans. That's how he was going to sit on David's throne. He was going to overthrow those oppressive, tyrannical Romans. The king would sit and set everything right. Justice would prevail The world would be flipped right side up. Everything would finally be right. The Romans would be conquered and Israel would be led into victory. That is what the Messiah we are waiting for will be like. That's what we're hoping the Messiah will do. Take away this very oppressive state and usher in a new order of things. But you wait. And you wait patiently. As you have always done, longing for God's deliverance. And every spring, you and nearly every other Jew, you go to Jerusalem to celebrate God's deliverance. You take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of the Passover. Now the Passover was a celebration of when God delivered the Israelites from the tyrannical hand of the Egyptians. The Pharaoh had the Israelites enslaved to building cities under horrible conditions while they were beaten and they were abused. And so under the oppression, the Israelites cried out to God for deliverance, and God sent deliverance. He provided it. And so God provided this deliverance by killing off every firstborn child in the land of Egypt. He did this as a judgment against the Egyptian gods. Now, Passover is in reference to God's angel passing over the households that had the blood of the lamb smeared on their households. It was something that God had told the Jewish people to do, the Israelites to do. The angel of death would see that the blood, that the lamb had been sacrificed in their place and it would pass over their household that would not kill the firstborn child within it. This is the context of the Exodus. A few days later, the Exodus takes place. You know, the Moses and his people lead uh, the, the people through the Red Sea and God delivers the people as he judges the Egyptians. Deliverance has come. God has provided deliverance. It's what the Passover is all about. Deliverance from oppression. Deliverance from tyranny of an evil government. So do you see as you as a peasant who are, who are hating the Romans and resenting the Romans because they're oppressing you all the time, do you see how this is a significant time for you? To go and to remember and to celebrate the Passover? The Passover is all about deliverance from oppression. 
You and all your friends and your family, you are awaiting another exodus. God, bring this new exodus. So you can understand why you, the peasant who feels oppressed, you get excited about the Passover as you remember what God had done in the past and you cry out for deliverance and deliverance shall come. And so here you are, you and roughly 2.5 million other Jews. You're all working your, working your way up the Jerusalem hillside, mile after arduous mile, walking up to the Jerusalem mountaintop where Jerusalem sits atop a mountain. Now we know there are roughly 2.5 million Jews in Jerusalem at this time because about 30 years later, the Romans took a census of how many lambs were slaughtered during the Passover. And they found that 250,000 lambs were slaughtered during the Passover. And there was a Jewish law that said you need at least 10 people at a party to celebrate the Passover per lamb. And so you multiply 10 by 250,000, you get 2.5 million people. That's pretty crowded, don't you think? Relatively small city uh, in our standard. It's a lot of people crowding into the streets of Jerusalem. A lot of people walking up that mountainside waiting for deliverance. And along the way, as you're walking up this mountainside, you start climbing the palm trees and the palm bushes and you start shearing them of all of their branches. And you carry these palms with you as a reminder and as a symbol. Now, Luke doesn't actually indicate here that they did this, but every other account in the New Testament does. All the other Gospels include that they strip the trees of the palm branches. We just had the kids walk in with palm branches. It's, it's an important symbol in the Bible. It's an important symbol in Israel's history. The first mention of palms in Israel's history was in Leviticus 2340. <coughs> On that day, you were to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. This is a description of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's a festival commemorating that God is among his people. That God lived in temporary shelter, so God said, hey, why don't you go make some temporary shelters to remember for seven days that I lived among you in a tent. And the palm, when the temple was constructed, became the primary decoration within it. If you, if you read the description of the palms in, uh, in the temple in uh, 1 Kings and in Ezekiel primarily, the palm was on everything. The walls and the altar and, and every the palm was the most important symbol within the temple itself. The palm became a symbol of God's providing presence among his people. And when the presence of God is among his people, there's also freedom. There's also victory. There's also deliverance when God is among his people. Amen? So the palm became this symbol of deliverance. It became this, this symbol of God's abiding, providing, delivering presence among his people. <clears throat> we find that when battles were won and victory was to be celebrated, when deliverance had happened, when those oppressive governments had been defeated, the natural reaction of the Israelites was to, to run and to shear the palm trees of their branches to start waving them around. We see this both in the Old Testament, also the New, and also in intertestamental writings. It was an important symbol for an oppressed people because their deliverer had arrived. We see this in 1 Maccabees. That's an intertestamental book. Most of us, if you're a Protestant, um, if you grew up in a Protestant tradition, don't have the the book of 1 Maccabees in your book. It happened in between the book of Malachi and Matthew. Uh, If you grew up Catholic, you might have recognized the the name 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees 13.51 says that on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, The Jews entered the citadel with shouts of jubilation, waving palm branches 
the music of harps and cymbals and lyres and the singing of hymns and canticles. Because, because a great enemy of Israel had been defeated, right? That oppressive foreign government that we're enslaved to, they've been defeated. Let's go grab our palm branches. It's not our first reaction, right, when we, when we feel delivered. But it was important to the, to the Israelites. It was important to the Jewish people to grab these palm branches because it was such an incredible symbol of God's deliverance among his people. We see this also in Revelation 7, right? Revelation is really a book of God's ultimate deliverance from oppression, It says that they were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. They have been delivered. They've been purified. They've been recreated. They're wearing white robes. They're waving palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The palm branch was an important symbol. And so it was customary on the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to celebrate God's past deliverances and the eager expectation of the, deliv- the, the deliverance that was yet to come by carrying palm branches. And as you were walking up this Jerusalem mountainside, you begin to, you begin to hear this ruffling behind you. There's, there's a, the, the crowd is beginning to stir behind you, and, and, and you turn around because you're wondering what's, what's going on. And you start to hear these people cry out, Jesus! Jesus is coming. Everyone knows of Jesus. He's the miracle worker. He's the one who rose Lazarus from the dead. He's the one who can heal the sick. He's the one who made the food fall from the sky and multiply the the food. And he's the one who calmed the storm. He's the one who can do incredible things. Jesus is coming. He is the Messiah, it is rumored. Do you guys get that? He is the Messiah. He is the one who will bring about this deliverance for God's people. And here he is riding on a donkey. It was prophesied in Zechariah that Israel's king, the one who would bring about restoration and peace, the one who would finally bring about that great deliverance of God's people, he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so if you're a good Jew at the time, you know the the past prophecy. You see Jesus riding in on a donkey. You know that the the Messiah was supposed to ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem to, to bring restoration and deliverance for his people. This is the Messiah, right? He must be coming to defeat the Romans. He must be going into Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. So everyone, of course, saw this, and they thought Jesus would bring restoration and peace a certain way. Yes, he's going to bring restoration. Yes, he's going to bring peace. He's going to do it through defeating the Romans. But they had no idea that it would be done through the cross. Because they were hoping for a rebellion. They were hoping for a war. They had no idea that Jesus would, a week later, hang upon this thing. And so you recognize that this king who is riding in on a donkey, he is going to liberate you from the Romans. And so naturally, as was done for countless men before, as you recognize a new king, you lay your cloaks on the ground. You make a first century version of a red carpet. You lay your cloaks on the ground. You usher in this new king. And as the people recognize Jesus as king, Luke tells us that they began to sing. They began singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The kids just sang it, we just sang it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, like the palm branches, Luke omits that what the other Gospels writers include, which is the first part of the verse. The first part of Psalm 118 says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. O Lord, save us is a translation of the Hebrew word Hosanna. 
we sing this word Hosanna, and like we all, we're all singing it. We're like, what does Hosanna mean? I don't know what I'm singing, but it means save us. God, deliver us. Rescue us, God. We need your deliverance. And so I love what, what Luke does here. You need to realize that year after year, Jewish men and women and children, as they were taking this annual pilgrimage up the mountainside to Jerusalem, they all stripped the trees of palm branches. Every year they did this. They all sang this song every year as they did this. It was part of the song of, uh, Psalm of Ascents. It was one of the songs that they sang as they walked up Jerusalem's hillside. Singing this song isn't something unique to this experience of Jesus arriving. Waving palm branches isn't this unique experience as, as they did only because they saw Jesus coming. But the way the gospel writers talk about this day is that only when they saw Jesus did they start to wave branches. Only when they saw Jesus did they begin to sing this song. But historically, it's not true. They did it every year. They were probably doing it as Jesus processed up the mountainside. Historically, it's not true, but the point is that with Jesus and only with Jesus, do these actions find their true meaning? Only with Jesus do these actions find their true meaning. Palm branches were waved as a symbol of hope for deliverance for God for an oppressed people. Singing Hosanna or God save us was a cry of distress for deliverance in a day of trouble. And so all of this applied to Jesus is true. In fact, with Jesus, it's the most true that can ever be. Only with Jesus do these actions find their true meaning. And so even though the people are crying out to Jesus, expecting a certain type of deliverance, or again, defeat of the Roman army, what they are saying, that Jesus is the Savior and the Deliverer, singing these songs, waving branches at him, it is certainly appropriate, it is certainly true. They just don't understand it correctly. And so that these people that are hearing all the people cry out to Jesus, Jesus, you're our Savior. Jesus, you're the Rescuer. Jesus, you're the Messiah. And these people are called Pharisees. Pharisees were the super religious type. They're the ones who attended church every single Sunday. They did not do anything on the Sabbath. They followed every law. They crossed every T. They dotted every I. They heard these people praising Jesus. And they understood what the Messiah was supposed to be like. They understood that Jesus didn't match up to their expectations of the Messiah. And so they tell Jesus, Jesus, stop telling them to, to, to cry out to you as king. Stop tell, uh, tell them to stop. Cry out to you as king. Tell them to stop to, to, to proclaim you as the Messiah. Tell them to stop saying, Hosanna, save us. It doesn't apply to you, Jesus. They wanted Jesus to acknowledge that he wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't the chosen one of God, that he had no power to rescue the people or to usher in God's new order for the world. But Jesus won't do it. He says that if the crowds don't praise me, if the people don't acknowledge me as deliverer and as their king and as their savior and as the one who would finally deliver this world out of its terrible state, if the people will not acknowledge me as the great deliverer, then the trees will begin to praise me. Then the rocks are going to begin to cry out, the mountains are going to begin to sing, that all of creation itself, that too is groaning under the tyranny of sin and death, that creation itself will begin to cry out because I am the deliverer and I am here. Deliverance is here and it needs to be acknowledged. If the people won't do it, then the rocks will do it. If the people won't do it, then the mountains will do it. If the people won't do it, then the trees will do it. Resurrection Church, do you believe that? Is that just a cool message for a first century audience, or does this apply to us? 
Man, if you do not praise Jesus as the deliverer, then the rocks around us will begin to do it. Because deliverance has come. Deliverance is here. Do you believe that? Because that was the hope of the crowds. That Jesus would be the deliverer. And so they're crying out, Jesus, save us. That was the hope of the crowds. But you didn't know that the crowds had such a narrow view of their problem. They had such a narrow view of their problem. They thought that only if the Romans would be done away with, then finally life would be good. Man, if we could just get rid of the Romans, then maybe our land would be established. If we can just get rid of the Romans, then these taxations will decrease, and and we can finally feel some freedom. If we can get rid of the Romans, then, then finally this oppression would cease, and we could finally be happy again. That's such a narrow view of their problem. All of their problems stem back to the Romans, and that was what they were hoping deliverance would be from. And Jesus understood this about the crowds. He understood that they wanted him to defeat the Romans, and that wasn't what he was planning on doing. He knew where the people placed their hope. He knew what type of future they were looking forward to. And so as he is riding his donkey, looking up at Jerusalem, he begins to cry. And he says, And Luke tells us that as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes, right? They wanted the Romans to be defeated, and they thought that would bring them peace. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Man, you think that peace will come and your land will be reestablished and life will be good if your Messiah would rise up to fight against the Romans. But people, you need to know that when you do so, and you will do so, Jesus says, you will rise up to fight against the Romans. You will get sick of the tyranny. You will get sick of the oppression. And you will rise up to fight against the Romans. And when you do so, it's not going to be a good day. The Romans will desolate this city and the temple within it. And it will be a stain on the Jewish people's history. And if only you would understand what the prophets were trying to say to you. If only you would understand what I'm trying to communicate. If only you would listen to me. But you won't do it. You're so fixated on your one problem being the Romans that you will not even acknowledge that there is a deeper problem that needs to be healed. And you will persist on deliverance your own way. You will persist on man's wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. You will insist on man's strength as opposed to God's great love. And in the end, it's going to be your ruin. In the end, it's going to be horrible for you. And so if you know anything about the history of the first century and the Jewish people, you might know that in AD 70, the Romans... And the Jewish people clashed within the walls of Jerusalem. And the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem as the people rose up to fight against the oppression, to fight up against the tyranny. The Romans killed thousands of Jews as they burned the city to the ground, and Jerusalem was left as a huge pile of rubble. Forty years after Jesus said this was going to happen, it happened. No, it didn't take but a week for the crowds to realize that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah that they were hoping for, right? He, he hadn't started any uprisings in the city. He hadn't been collecting weapons. He hadn't been establishing an army. He hadn't been making a, a game plan or hadn't had any strategic meanings. He was teaching. 
He was in the temple teaching people about the kingdom of God. He was healing people. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be making a game plan. So it's no surprise that when Jesus finally does announce publicly that he is the Christ, that he is God's Messiah, that the people just don't believe it. And the same crowd that sang his praises and hailed him as their coming king on the way into Jerusalem, that sang, Hosanna, deliver us, God, you are our king. It was that exact same crowd that a week later began to yell, crucify him. Nail him to the cross. He's not the Messiah. We want crucify him. It's the same crowd. Now the people acknowledge their need for deliverance, right? They knew that they needed deliverance. They knew that their lives were, were under the yoke of oppression. They knew that their situation was dire. They knew that they had no hope. They knew life wasn't going to get any better for them. They felt oppressed and they felt enslaved. And so naturally they cried out for deliverance. But what did they want deliverance from? They looked at their problem and they said, it's the Romans. The problem is with the Romans. They are the problem. And so God, deliver us from the Romans. Deliver us from this oppression, from this tyrannical rule. But you know what? Man in his power, if they were strong enough, could fight against the Romans. Man could develop an army big enough and they could go and fight against the Romans. You don't need God to deliver you from the Romans. That cannot be your problem. And so God looks at our problem and he says, guys, it's not the Romans. The Romans are not your problem. The, ro- the problem is that this world is broken. The problem is that this world is full of sin and hatred and bitterness and, and anger and death. The problem is that you all have these hearts that are bent in on themselves and, and you all have these self-reigning mentalities and you don't care for anybody else and you're, you're seeking self-gratification and self-reign and you all live this me, me, me lifestyle. You all have this sinful condition and that is the problem. And not only is that the one problem, it's the problem that overlaps all problems. That is the problem with the world, my friends. It's not the Romans. It's your sinful condition. It's your sinful heart. And if sin is the problem with the world, then humanity and our power and our strength, we have no ability to do anything about it. We can't just be good enough. We have a sinful condition. We can't just be good enough. We are the problem, and therefore we cannot be the solution to the problem. Do you guys understand that? Do you guys get that? So I want to pause here and ask you some very pointed questions, Restoration Church. What is your problem? What's your problem? What do you need deliverance from today? And by whose terms do you want to be delivered? Because the thing is, God will not deliver one component of your life and let the rest of you go. God is not content just to deliver one component or experience in your life and let the rest of you go. He's not content to do that. He's not willing to do that. If God delivers you, it will be on his terms, which means that he is going to take you and he's going to put this old self to death and he's going to create you anew. If you think of yourself like a house, 
many of us would probably recognize as we look in the mirror each morning, as we think about our own lives, we'd probably recognize that, yeah, you know, there's a couple walls that could be taken down. Some of the plumbing could probably be redone. Yeah, I, I, I get that. You know, there's a little work that needs to be done, but, you know, I'm not a complete waste. But when God looks at us, when he looks at our, our house, our sinful condition, he sees that our entire house is full of mold. He sees that the foundation is sinking into the ground and that there is actually even a roof on our house that's been blown off completely, that your walls are crumbling and that the whole house is falling apart. The pipes are corroding and the foundation is sinking and, 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 and there, there's no hope for this house. And if we would just take a second to step back and take a good look at ourselves, I think that we would probably recognize that he is right. We just haven't noticed because this is the house we grew up in. This is the house we were born into. That's never had a roof on it. We never knew any different. The walls were always corroding. We didn't know that there were a problem. The foundation always had that weird slant to it. It's just how the house was. We just, it was the environment we lived in. It's kind of like that old adage of when the frog asked the fish how he liked the water. And the fish says, what's water? You don't know there's a problem because it's the environment that you've always lived in. It's only the only environment that you have ever known. And God just doesn't want to replace the roof. He doesn't want to just fix the foundation. He wants to tear the whole house down and he wants to start from scratch. Because if God will deliver you, he will deliver all of you. And so we look at our lives and we think the problem is the walls, right? We think the problem is the the sinking foundation and the roof that's been blown off. We think the problem is, is these external things. I suffer an addiction and I just can't kick it. That's my problem if I could just fix the addiction. Or I look in the mirror and I ask how anyone could ever love this. And I just, I long to be met with unconditional love and, and acceptance. But for some reason, I just can't seem to find it. That's my problem. Or I'm so lonely that, that pornography seems to be the only thing that can give me any sense of, of acceptance in this life. You know, I have this addiction, and I know it's superficial, but, but it's the only thing that seems to give me any, any sense of, of love. Or I have such low self-worth and great depression that I am a slave to thoughts of, of suicide and, and worthlessness and hopelessness and despair just covers my life. Or I was recently diagnosed with cancer and I'm just, I'm full of fear. Or I recently lost my job and I wonder how I'm going to provide for my family. Or my marriage is struggling because of resentment has built up over the years and I fear that there's coming a day when I'm just going to explode. Or my children, they just hate me. Restoration Church, what do you need deliverance from? What's your problem? Because what the crowds and so many of us fail to realize is that the problem that overlaps all the problems in the world is the sinful condition of the world. And all these problems, though they are very much real, I don't want to minimize that any of the things I just mentioned are are just superficial problems. Those are all real, real problems. 
And if you are experiencing any of those problems, then I mourn and I grieve with you. And you have a, a community of people who will mourn and grieve with you and help you in those as well. But all these problems are like the crowd saying, the Romans are the problem. If we could just get rid of the Romans, then we'd find deliverance. If we could just get rid of the Romans, then our oppression would stop. If we could just get rid of the Romans, then life would be good. Then we'd be cured. Then everything would be fine. But you need to realize that only when the sinful condition is dealt with, when that house is completely knocked down, can the solution to the world's problem be found. And so if you recognize today that you have a problem and you need deliverance, then the cross of Jesus Christ is the only place that it can be found. Jesus defeated the sinful problem when he took on our sin, our penalty, our death, and he put it upon his own shoulders as he was nailed to the cross. We no longer have to be enslaved to that sinful condition because this, this device of death, And Jesus hanging on it and the blood that was shed set us free from that. And it allows us to walk freely now into the future. And today, if you place your trust in what Jesus accomplished on this, and and you know what, quite frankly, I don't care if you've already placed your trust in Christ, if you place it newly today, and as you wake up in the morning, if you place it again in the cross of Jesus Christ, and the day after that, if you place it again in the cross of Jesus Christ, every day, preach yourself the gospel, friends. Every day, remind yourself of this. Every day, hold this up before you because it will continue to push you further into deliverance. It will continue to push you further into hope. It will continue to push you further into freedom. Amen? Now, I don't mean that your life is all of a sudden like you're going to, hey, Jesus, I need forgiveness. I I recognize I have a problem and the sinful condition. I need to be set free of it. Jesus, do it for me, right? He's done it. I'm not saying that all of a sudden, like, the moment you do that, your life is all of a sudden going to be cheery and bright. I'm not saying that the job that you lost is going to be reinstated because you put your trust in Jesus. I'm not saying that your cancer is going to go away because you put your trust in Jesus. I'm not saying that your, stop is going to, your spouse is going to stop resenting you or your children are going to stop loving you because you put your trust in Jesus. But you need to recognize that what will begin to grow in you What will begin to grow in you is a new person. God is going to start rebuilding your house, in other words. Because maybe you lied your way through life thinking it would make your life better. And you could get ahead of your coworkers and the people who are vying for positions at work. But you realize that all those lies eventually caught up with you. You couldn't keep track of them all anymore and it in the end ruined you. Well, trusting in Christ is beginning to change you into a person of integrity. Maybe your household and your relationships with your spouse and with your children is a wreck because selfishness runs your household. Anybody experience that today? That selfishness is actually the foundation of your household. Well, trusting in Christ will change you and all the others who put their trust in Christ within your household to be a person who begins to love first rather than consider themselves first. And you will find deliverance from chaos and hurt. It may not happen today, but it's going to happen over time. Maybe you've been diagnosed with an illness and your heart is full of fear. 
Well, trusting in Christ may not take the illness away, but it'll allow you to know that you're not alone. And that there's a community of people who love you and care for you and want to support you. And God will begin to fill your heart with his comfort and his peace amidst your fear because of what Christ has done on the cross. Or maybe you look in the mirror and you hate what you see and you wonder if anyone will actually love this thing and you accept you without conditions of beauty or talent and you just want to be loved. Well, trusting in Christ will allow you to see that God just does just that. That this is unconditional love at its finest, friends. God loves you and his love goes beyond your skin color or what you look like or how popular you are or what talents you can provide. Trusting in Christ will create in you a new identity. An identity not founded on what you look like, an identity not founded on how good you are at something, but an identity found on his unconditional grace, his unconditional acceptance, his unconditional love. What do you need deliverance for or from? Because if you think your problem is your current condition or some experience you have, it's like the crowd saying, it's the Romans, they're the problem. And if that is the case, my friends, then God can do nothing for you. There is no hope that God offers you if you think your problem is the Romans. But if you recognize that there is this all-encompassing problem and it begins here with my sinful human heart, then God is more than willing to deliver you from that. You just need to know that he's going to do it on his terms, which is right here. So Restoration Church, where are you going to put your hope this morning? Will you cry out to the God who has already delivered you through Jesus Christ and place your trust in this and see the deliverance that will come through that? Or are you going to continue to place it in a false Messiah who just wants to rise up to beat against the Romans? That question is yours to ponder this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for a place like this where we can come freely to reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ. God, I know that so often, Father, I I look at the problems in my own life and I I see the fear, uh, whether that be through financial fear, Father, or or even raising my children, Father, in a world, in the world that it is. I see the fear and I see the problem, Father. And I say, wow, maybe... Maybe if I got a second job, or maybe if I worked harder, or, or all these things, Father, that that would be the cure, that that would be the solution. Or, or if I just put my children in different schools, or put them in private schools, that would be the solution to all of our problems. But God, the problem is not with the Romans. The problem is not with our external conditions, Father. And so, God, I pray that you would change me and change us into a people who reflect on your cross daily and say that that is where deliverance can be found. Change me, Father. Change my heart to be a father who raises my children well. Teach me, Father. Create in me a heart that is content. God, and, and, and trust in you to provide for my family rather than striving and striving and striving. Father, I trust in you. And I pray that Restoration Church would be a people who trust in you. Amen. Amen. God be glorified in our lives. Amen.